0: Thank you, Concordia. we appreciate uh, you leading us today. If you uh, have your Bibles, you I'm going to go ahead and open them to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We'll be coming back to that in just a few moments. Now, every week, really every day, we hear of people in our society dying at the hands of other people. So just this week, a man was arrested in Queens, New York, for murdering a woman uh, by stabbing her 58 times in her basement. And there's allegedly a connection between them in the past. Chicago, what a beautiful city it is. One person, which is uh, down, there's always several each week, but one person was killed, 15 wounded there since last Friday, and the death was of a 15-year-old boy many people in our culture seem no longer to have any respect for life anymore as evidenced by the outbreak of gun violence here in our own state in columbia at a mall a couple of weeks ago Uh, 12 people were injured and now three have been arrested in relationship to that and of course on an international scale it seems that in ukraine the russian soldiers indiscriminately murdered civilians And some mass graves are being dug up in an effort to prove that that type of war crime was committed. And even here in sleepy, uh, small-city Anderson, our paper Thursday, Anderson man convicted of murder in 2019 apartment shooting. And then another one, South Carolina Supreme Court upholds conviction of man in 2015 killing. You know, surely the human heart is full of evil and violence, isn't it, in our natural state. As Paul described the human race in Romans chapter 3, outside of Christ, drawing upon the Psalms, he said in verse 15 that their feet are, quote, swift to shed blood. Well, in our series, True Lines, in which we are looking at our faith from the ground up, and I hope you're reading ahead or reading through the Little Baptist Faith and Message booklet because we'll get to all of those articles uh, most all of them in there in the weeks ahead and we'll try to get this wrapped up hopefully uh, through the summer but um, in that series um, we're looking at our faith from the ground up we're in a section where we're seeking to grasp what the bible says about how we are to think and live and even feel as god's people who've experienced salvation and new birth We're learning about growing up to maturity as believers, following after Jesus, our model, and somehow by the Holy Spirit working within us with the power that he gives to us that we were singing about a moment ago in Concordia with believe for it, believe in the Lord's miracles, his work, believe him to work for the impossible to be overcome and see a miracle. We believe part of that miracle is the Spirit of God working in us to transform us to become like Jesus. This is message number 30 in our series. To help us process this part of the series, we've been um, drawing upon the Ten Commandments and then seeing how the law stayed in the Old Testament, how it plays out in the New Testament, how that applies to us and what becomes the law of Christ and those things that are repeated in the New Testament. And we're learning how all that begins to fit together with what the Bible says in the New Testament about our ethics, about what it means to grow up in Christ. This is called sanctification, growing to maturity, being set apart unto holiness. And so today, we turn to the sixth command, commandment, <clears throat> excuse me, in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 13. And this is where we'll pick back up. Exodus 20 in verse 13. In the Ten Commandments, verse 13 says, You shall not murder. This is the shortest of the commandments that you read in this section. You shall not murder. Now, since we have for a couple of weeks wandered off the main development of this series as we've talked about the Lord Jesus in relationship to Palm Sunday and Easter, let me seek to get us back on track by noting that one key theme that I've been seeking to get across in this part of the series is that we are, as God's people, to begin to be a living witness to a world that, that is in darkness. We're a living witness that something new has broken into the world. A new power, a new work of God that's broken into the world. And that's going to culminate someday with the second coming of Jesus Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. And those who are believers will dwell with him in that new heaven and new earth. And as that new power is broken into the world and the people in us, we have experienced salvation in Christ, then a new and living thing needs to begin to be seen or should be seen in the world, in the life of the church, as we live out our lives as Christians before a watching world. And so our place or one place where that will be seen is that uh, Christians are gonna be the people who have the greatest respect for human life growing out of this central teaching we're going to talk about today and others. And so today we're going to look at this command as it relates to our interaction with people generally in the world and in the church and in how we think about our own lives. Thou shalt not murder. The title of the message is Respecting and Honoring Life. And I probably will do three or four messages growing up out of this in relationship to some of the other topics I will allude to in this message. So, first of all, let's talk about this text in in the vein of looking at unlawful actions. What is he saying here when he says, thou shalt not murder? Sometimes when people come to this verse, they think that it excludes all taking of human life in any way. And unfortunately, some translations, like the King James Version, they have, thou shalt not kill. But that is not the best translation. The best translation is, thou shalt not murder, because there are two different words in the Bible. It should be, you shall not murder. And so the Hebrew word translated murder here means to murder or to slay. It was used in the Old Testament to talk about what you and I would categorize as homicide, in the sense that you and I might, you and I might think of somebody taking someone's life deliberately, as we said, as a criminal offense. And so it can refer to being a murderer in that sense where one actively takes a life unlawfully. But it can also be used to refer to someone who caused a death through negligence or careless behavior. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 35 and other places in the law. So comparatively today, we have some people who commit negligent homicide. Sometimes you hear that term or that phraseology, negligent homicide. Homicide. And so, that is applied in some states to say killing someone while driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And so, Henry Ruggs, who played for Alabama, then played for Las Vegas Raiders in a car wreck, killed someone, highly intoxicated. He's not being tried right now for murder because the laws of that state may not allow it, but in some states, when somebody commits vehicular homicide, then they are tried. Uh, for murder and there are penalties in relationship to 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 that and so there's that idea of negligence and killing someone can also be termed sometimes as murder but this word ratzak we are told um, was not the word used in relationship to things like judicial execution like capital punishment and so we have people on death row here in south carolina one that's facing uh, I think he's chosen to die by firing squad coming up, and it's still being debated in the courts whether it's going to take place. Well, this word is not used to apply to capital punishment or in relationship to killing in in war, as far as like being in battle. So this commandment, thou shalt not murder, should not be used as seeking to decide what we should believe about capital punishment or whether or not a Christian should go to war. And we will talk about that as we go through this series. Or in determining matters in relationship to self-defense. And so as I have related before, my grandfather on my mother's side, he killed a man in self-defense on his front porch who came over and he was inebriated. And he was there, my grandfather with some of the children, the man pulled a knife out and tried to... Um, caused damage and my grandfather shot him and killed him and he was arrested and he was uh, eventually um, uh, lost everything he had before he was finally exonerated or the charges were dropped and he was not considered a murderer ultimately because it was self-defense And so when the text says, thou shalt not murder, here it is not applied to issues like self-defense, issues like capital punishment, issues like being normatively in war. There are other texts we must look at in relationship to that. But often it just gets painted with a broad brush by people to say this uh, prohibits all types of killing and any type of killing is is sinful. That's why some Christians interpret the Bible to say I should be a pacifist and I should never go to war. I should never kill someone. Some take it to the, uh, to the point in their lives where they think they could never serve as a police officer. And there have been Christian traditions that have taught that down through time. So what is condemned then by this word would be murder or killing, as we've said, of a person by another human being overtly or at times by negligence. And this command would include other actions such as euthanasia, that is helping someone die. And even if it is legal in certain states, it is not legal before God, it is still murder to aid someone in taking their life. The same thing would be true in relationship to suicide. We never have the right to take our lives. It is sinful or abortion or genocide. And we'll deal again with some of those issues going forward. Now, I think in God's general grace, even though the human heart is bent toward evil, he has put in the human heart the law written on the natural heart that murder is wrong. And so it is generally condemned in all cultures, and laws are enforced to curb it taking place. And so whether out of self-preservation, fear of law, or a sense that murder is wrong, most people don't go around taking other people's lives deliberately, right? Most people in a culture don't end up murdering someone. And because of that, most people would not see themselves ever as being a murderer. But as we come to this issue as Christians, we are reminded that the God who is creating a new family on this earth is creating them in holiness to be like himself. And so he has an application of this command to our lives that goes much deeper. He has a calling upon us that is much higher and one that will truly cause us to stand out in a world that is filled with violence and a world that does not respect human life and a world that is filled with anger and a world that people treat each other wrongly in the lostness of the world. And we see that God has a deeper plan for us in relationship to this when we come to another passage of Scripture. And now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. So I didn't read these together purposefully today, but now I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 through 26 where we hear Jesus talking about this issue in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny." Now, some translations have here that uh, if you are um, angry without cause of a brother and sister, but that was certainly added in by a later scribe who probably couldn't believe that Jesus was hammering it home in this way, that if you are angry with somebody, he equates it to murder. But without cause is not in the best translations. So just if it's in your translation, you sh- it's not in the original language. And so, as we hear Jesus, though, he is talking about murder, isn't he? And he's obviously drawn upon that passage in Exodus, so we see this part of the law is repeated in the New Testament, and it's part of that law of Christ, thou shalt not murder, that applies to us. And in this passage, Jesus begins to show us that God is not simply concerned, though, about our outward actions or inaction in relationship to killing somebody physically. Jesus is concerned about the heart. He's concerned about our dispositions. And so secondly, I want us to delve into this now and look at what he says about our sinful dispositions and how he relates it to this command, thou shalt not murder. The Sermon on the Mount is the early teaching of Jesus. And um, in it, he has laid before his disciples the beginning of the ethics of the kingdom. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, let me just kind of introduce this Sermon on the Mount a moment here. So he begins it by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about this new kingdom that's breaking into the world. Jesus himself is the new king. And now he's laying out his law, his teaching. And he has come to establish his eternal kingdom. And this is how he calls his new citizen kingdoms, uh, his new citizens in the kingdom to live. And in this section, again, he is dealing with some of the commands of the Old Testament. He deals with about five here. And he's calling his people to live distinctly in comparison to the world around them. He isn't calling into question the Old Testament law, its validity, its force, its uh, the moral nature of it. If you look in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So the law is going to complete its purpose. He is fulfilling the law. He begins to teach the law of Christ that you and I will be under. And I think that's what he's beginning to allude to in verse 19. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's he's moving salvation history forward here in relationship to the transition from the old to the new. But he's building out of it. He says the law was good, as Paul says. It was profitable. It served its purpose. And now growing out of it, I have something even deeper, more profound, more powerful for my Kingdom citizens who are following after me, and so what Jesus is challenging here is not the law. That's the point I'm wanting you to understand. He's challenging the teachers of Israel and in their interpretation of the law, their twisting of the law. And so when he says, "You have heard that it was said to the people long ago," and expounds upon it, he's alluding to the Old Testament command, but also what lies in the background, and he's talking about the Jewish leaders and how they've applied it. And we know this is clear, clear, uh, This becomes clear as he develops this message. He sets up these contrasts. So there's like five contrasts here. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. He's not challenging the goodness of the law. He's challenging how these people have perverted or twisted or watered down or changed the law. And we know that when you come to verse 43 in this passage when he comes to one of the other comparisons here so if you skip down to verse 43 i'm just trying to help you get your mind around what's taking place before i take us further into what he's teaching us and so matthew 5 43 here's that formula again you've heard that it was said love your neighbor well that's certainly in the old testament but what's what's it going to say you've heard it said that uh, love your neighbor and what hate your enemy well that's nowhere in the old testament But this is how they had gotten to this point where that if you were a faithful Jew and you were following after them and God uh, visited his wrath upon the enemies, you could hate your enemy. And so what Jesus, he knows his people. He knows the background, the context. He knows what's going on in their mind. So if a lot of these people have been taught all this stuff by the scribes and the Pharisees and there's a mixture of what's right and what's wrong and Jesus is correcting it and he's taking us to the level he wants us to be at. In following after him and so they had all this extensive commentary on the Bible which became an authority itself but they mishandled the Word of God so he's beginning to, to correct that and so in this instance on murder the Jewish teachers had pretty much allowed one to fulfill this command by simply not killing somebody you got that one down check it off you hadn't killed anybody you haven't murdered anybody so you haven't you haven't killed but you could hate your enemies and you could be angry even with your fellow Israelite in how they had twisted the law. But Jesus says, no, my disciples, you're called to something deeper. And Remember in this sermon, Jesus has talked about our righteousness that he says it must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. If you go to chapter 5 and verse 20, right before we get to what we're talking about today. Matthew five twenty, he says for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the the kingdom of heaven and so they misinterpreted the law they added to it you could address them. Um, you know, things that God didn't say hate your enemy, they lessened things where it was more convenient. Like divorce, they made it more convenient and read in reading Matthew 5, 31. So he's correcting it, but he's saying, our righteousness must be higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were very meticulous people. So in other words, following Jesus doesn't mean that we're free to become less holy. We're going to be more holy than the scribes and the Pharisees. But we're going to come, become that way in a, in a new way. So how does our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, first of all, we become righteous when we trust in Christ and it's given to us as a gift when we believe. Now what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 in verse 17, he talks about how we become righteous or right in God's sight. And he says that um, in Romans 5, 17... He says, for if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so we receive our righteousness first by trusting in Jesus and his righteousness becomes ours. And so as I was explaining to Wilson and his sister up here, Millie Margaret, earlier about being baptized, they were wearing the robes today. And that white robe is a symbol for us that um, we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at me, he no longer sees me as a sinner. He sees me as somebody that is covered. Jesus' record has become my record. So that's how my righteousness begins to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're trying to work for it, earn it. You can never be good enough. You can never measure up. You've got to be perfect. God says, I'll give you that as a gift when you trust in my son. So that's one way our righteousness begins to exceed theirs. But further, when we are made righteous, when we're saved, when we're forgiven, we're also given a new heart or a new nature, and the Spirit comes to live within us. And that's where that power comes from, that Concordia, our praise group was singing about a bit ago. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, it tells us something new has taken place in us. And so Hebrews 10, verse 15 through 17, it says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. So my sins are remembered no more. I'm covered in the righteousness of Jesus, and I'm given a new disposition, new heart, in which God's law is written on my heart by the the Lord. And the Holy Spirit's living within me, beginning to give me power now to follow after Christ to obey him, a power I don't have before I become a Christian. So that's another way I began to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then as I follow after Christ and obey him, there is now a power to love and obey God and pursue what he wants now from my heart. And that's where I begin to grow, to become like Jesus. These scribes and Pharisees were never going to become like Jesus. They were never going to become like God, no matter how hard they tried because they needed a new heart. But when you trust in Jesus, right? You're righteous, you get a new heart, new power through the Holy Spirit. And then you now have a power to begin to follow after the Lord and grow up in Him, which we're talking about right now. And so in Romans 8, verses 11 and 12, it says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, he says, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation as believers But it is not to the flesh, that is to live like we used to live before we were saved. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Because you're not one with a new heart, you're not saved. But listen, if you're a Christian and the Spirit has come to live within you, and you have that new heart, and you've been forgiven, there's a power within you. And he says here, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so that's how we have exceeding righteousness over the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when Jesus says here in the passage, your righteousness must exceed theirs, well, all of that becomes part of the recipe and the formula for how that takes place. And so this exceeding righteousness for us now is not this, that they had 640 laws to keep, and we're so much better in Jesus that we have 650, and we do better than they at keeping our 650 versus their 640. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something new has broken into the world. You're a new people under a new king with a new power. Yes, there was the law in the Old Testament, thou shalt not murder, but I want you to understand Jesus says it goes much deeper and there's something I want you to overcome in your life and I'm going to give you the power to overcome it so you can shine as my people in the world that something new and powerful is happening. And so he's talking about the depth in our lives. We're new creations. So as we look at this passage, not only as God's people do we not murder We're also now bent on living lives in which we are not angry with people. Murder originates from an angry heart. Does it not? Jesus talked about that. Murder originates out of the heart comes murders and all these things. In Matthew chapter 15, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus put it this way. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. And So not only are we not to murder, but now by God's power, we're not to be people who are walking around who are angry and having an angry heart. And I want you to listen how pointed the apostle John gets about this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, when he says this, don't overlook this in your Bible. 1 John three fifteen. anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. If your heart is full of hatred toward any brother or anybody, then it may show you haven't received a new heart. You're guilty of murder. You'll face judgment in that way. And so this passage is telling us that. It's telling us that we don't hold anger from being offended. Now, there is a type of righteous anger we'll come to later. But today I'm just talking about anger from personal affront, not being angry at some injustice in society. Jesus was angry about those things, where somebody was hindering somebody from work. You could be angry and not sin. But this is talking about when somebody is offending you, somebody hurts you in the world. Jesus is our model for how we handle that. In 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23, it says, When they reviled him, he did not revile them back. Not only did not revile back, he ultimately loved them and asked God to forgive them, right? And so we don't hold anger in our hearts, right? You've heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder. I tell you, Jesus says, If you're angry, With a brother or sister, you're subject to judgment. It's the same thing of talking about being judged for murder. And he's not using this as like a degree of scale where it gets worse as you go up. He's just hammering the point home here. If you're living with this anger in your heart, and he's going to illustrate it a bit more for us here, he says you are, in a sense, harboring murder in your heart, and you'll be held accountable for that. You may show you don't have a regenerate heart. He goes on to say here in the passage as well, not only do you not hold anger when you've been personally offended, you also don't demean people or call them names, people that you're angry with or treat them with contempt. So he goes on to say this. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The idea here is that we call these people empty, empty-headed. Or the word fool is for the word that comes from the word we get, moron. And so in our anger, we don't hold contempt against people to talk badly about them. Because if we do, that shows that we're perhaps not righteous. And finally, he is saying we as God's people with these new hearts, we are people who are passionate about and serious about reconciliation. And we want to get it done quickly. So Jesus is saying, you know, if you're sitting in church and your pastor's preaching, and you're here to worship God today, but you're harboring anger in your heart towards someone, or you know a brother or sister has something against you, you ought to get up like some people do during the invitation, but you need to do it now. Get up and leave and go find that person and seek to be reconciled to them because Jesus says, this is the heart of my people. They don't nurse their anger like a murderer has anger growing up within them that causes murder. They don't talk down and badly about people and call them foolish names and gossip and talk to other people about them of how stupid and foolish and moronic they are. And they want to make it right, and so if it's a brother or sister, they go. But even here, he's talking about if, if, if you have a problem with an outsider, somebody who's, who's not a Christian, because I think in verse 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. And in the time there, if somebody was taking you to court... You owe to money, it didn't get settled. I mean, they throw you in prison, you had to stay there, you paid it back. Well, you don't have a job, you can't pay it back, so you're there forever. So it's another picture in a sense of, of hell. So Jesus is saying, go work it out. That's the heart of my people. We cannot properly worship if we're holding things against people. Or know somebody has something against us and we're not trying to work it out in our lives now instead of me sharing a story with you about this today I will in a sense but Ben Franklin's back in the news right now because of uh, Ken Burns got a new documentary out on Ben Franklin and there's sort of a new popular level biography out about Ben Franklin one of our founding fathers Ben Franklin was not a Christian he heard George Whitfield preach over and over and over again he was convicted when George Whitfield was raising money the great evangelist for orphanages in Georgia. He was from England. And uh, he would go hear Whitfield preach, and he said, I'd empty out my pockets. As far as we know, Ben Franklin never gave his life to Christ. He was a deist, but he sought to perfect his character in his life. And he had um, a way of um, approaching his life in relationship to virtues, he had 13 virtues. And there was this chart, and he would take one per week. I think that one's on uh, temperance. And you see where he would mark, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He had his notations down through there, his uh, abbreviations of how he did. And uh, if he did well, working on that one, then he would move to the next one. And he just did this in a cycle. So when you get to the 13th virtue, and he did well on that one, he would start over again you got to give him this. He was trying to be right introspective about what was going on in his life, how he treated people, all those kinds of things, how he dealt internally. Basically, Ben Franklin was taking inventory. And when we read a passage like this today that started with, Thou shalt not murder. And I say, well, I've, I haven't done that one. I'm, scribes and Pharisees will say, well, you're right up there with us. But Jesus says, if you're going to live with me, your righteousness must exceed theirs. It exceeds theirs by you receiving a gift. But if you really have the gift, you've got a new heart and a new power. And it's going to begin to show up in how you live and the real decisions that you make. And a lot of that is going to be in relationship to people. Because what we deal with more than anything else is we deal with people, right? Right? And none of us is fully perfect yet. We're in that process of growing to be like Jesus. So am I willing then to deal with these things the Bible brings up as I seek to grow to be like Jesus? Am I really willing to deal with these things and really get honest with God about these things? Because John says, if you hate your brother in your heart, 1 John, you've murdered him. And he says, no murderer shall ever inherit the kingdom of God. So let me do a little Ben Franklin on us today. And you may have other ones you want to raise and ask, but let's take inventory. Is there someone with whom you are angry on a personal level and you've not tried to resolve it? Is there anyone that you hate? In your heart, anybody? Is there somebody that you have heard or wrong, maybe even unintentionally, and they have something against you? Are you going to try to seek to work it out even before you come back to worship again? Jesus, uh, Paul said in Romans twelve eighteen, as much as it lies with you. What did he say? Can you complete it with me? Live at peace with all people, as much as it lies with you. Is there someone who has hurt you that you've not forgiven? And your anger in your heart toward them is evidence of that. We're not dealing specifically with forgiveness today, but it, it flows right into that, into this. Have you forgiven people? Do you shun people with whom you're angry? Do you refuse to speak to them? Do you turn a cold shoulder? Do you desire to be in fellowship with them again? You know, Jesus cried out completely innocent from the cross, right? And he yelled out, Father, what? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Have you forgiven? Will you forgive? Someone has said that refusing to forgive someone is like eating rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's just going to kill you. Is there someone that your anger causes you to wish them harm? I remember my dad telling me a story, and I've shared this years ago, when he went into church one Sunday, I think he had become a deacon, and it was a senior adult lady in the foyer, and this other guy walked by another deacon in the church, and my dad said, well, he's a, that's a really fine man right there, and this uh, lady said, I could just see him dead. Uh, right there in First Baptist Church. Hey, Is there anybody that something's happening and causes you to talk badly about them, demean them as a fool or a moron? Do you mock them? And seek to make yourself better in your eyes because you demean them and you lessen them. Our words, if we really want to get serious about this, reveal much about what's in our hearts. And all of us, I'm sure, if not today, in the past, or in the future, we're going to have to deal with this. I know I have in relationship to anger and forgiveness and not letting the sun go down on our anger, as Paul says. Do you talk about people and demean them? Is there someone you're angry with and you are passive-aggressive toward them? So you can make them know that you're angry with them. You do little things for payback. You use pointed words or illusions in conversations to stick it to them. They show you there's some unresolved anger there. You see, our calling is to respect life, respect people. And so the call to not be a murderer is a high calling and a deep calling as disciples of the new king who has claimed us and given us new power to live differently toward one another, and in essence to those who are not part of our spiritual family. And if we have that power, we must pursue God to help us. And maybe you're sitting and you're saying, Man, this is hard, and it is it can be hard. But the question is, do we believe he has the power to help us? And doesn't Paul say in Philippians that it is God who works in us? Can you say this one with me? Both to will and to do his good pleasure.